species relation the in their body the softness and being hard it seems even in other examples i like this aspect that how this combination what would happen when combining the softness and hardness in different creatures to adapt to like this example i don't know if that makes sense uh, in this scenario but have you ever thought about the softness and hardness in the bodies too how this component go together in terms of morphology and representation in the bodies okay when I think of hardness and softness, I'm actually thinking of the biomechanical definition of both of these words. So hardness, how difficult is it to indent the tissue? Softness, it's relatively easy to indent the tissue. Their muscles aren't any softer or harder than any other mammal that I've studied. The muscle tissue feels quite like muscle tissue, vertebrate muscle tissue. Their bones have, we have also studied their bones, but we have not studied the hardness of their bones. But I do think I have an answer that will be satisfactory for you. Beyond hardness or softness, when it comes to the bone properties, the material properties of the bones, we were interested to know how strong are the bones, how stiff are the bones. And we did that as a complementary study to the tendons, how strong and stiff are their tendons. We had a hypothesis that for an animal that makes its living moving upside down in trees, that the bones would have to have enhanced tensile strength. And perhaps that would mean their compressive strength was compromised. We found data that would indicate that is true. Yet their forelimb bones are a bit stronger than their hindlimb bones. I found that interesting. But if you think about how they move, their forelimbs are the propulsive elements. They propel the animal forward, whereas their hind limbs are the braking limbs. They're controlling accelerations of the body and they're predominantly there for support. So that makes sense now. In terms of bending strength, the same thing we found. Their bones are a bit stiffer and a bit stronger in bending in the forelimb than they are in the hind limb. So comparing the humerus to the femur. Well, we went one step further. We also studied some limb bones from rats as a generalized mammal, and we studied limb bones from uh, another species or two of monkey, howler monkey and vervet monkey. Well, the primates have stronger bones overall than do the sloths. The hind limbs in particular of a primate, a femur, stronger and stiffer, more like what we think of as an upright mammal. The rats have very similar properties. They're an upright mammal. They're also hind limb biased are the primates, like we talked about earlier. Bradypus appears to be hind limb biased as well, but moving upside down is a different set of mechanical variables to deal with versus moving upright. Yet when we go to the forelimb, this is interesting. The forelimb bones of sloths are a bit stronger than those from monkeys. But in either case, there's indications of possible trade-offs between tensile strength and compressive strength. Now, why would that be important? Well, monkeys and great apes rely mainly on their hind limbs to support their body weight. That's when they're upright. You're familiar with knuckle walking in chimpanzees and gorillas. Uh, primates on the ground do these type of gates that are called ambles, and it's a form of running but they're mainly relying on their body weight to be supported by their hind limbs. So their forelimbs are offloaded to some degree. 
what do they do with their forelimbs? They grip and grasp and maneuver and manipulate objects. So it stands to reason that their forelimb bones don't need to be as strong in compression or don't need to be as stiff in compression as their forelimb bones or as their hindlimb bones. But what do they do when they go below branch, like a howler monkey? Well, their forelimb bones have relatively greater tensile strength compared to their hindlimb bones. What are the main propulsive elements when they're moving below branch? Their forelimbs. So they're shifting their body weight. They shift more weight onto their forelimbs when they're below branch, but when they're moving above branch, they keep it positioned over their hind limbs. That makes sense in terms of the relative strength between the forelimbs and the hind limbs. For a sloth, it doesn't appear to matter. The forelimbs are nearly equal to that of the hind limbs. So that gets more to a strength and a stiffness aspect of your question. You can relate that to hardness. Hardness could be a proxy there. So we're thinking in terms of the tissue properties, and this is something that we want to do in the future. What we need to know now is what's the relative amount of collagen in the bones? What do the arrays of collagen look like? Are they parallel? Are they at an angle? Does a sloth bone have as much collagen as a typical humerus from a howler monkey or a femur from a capuchin monkey or some other mammal that makes use of suspension? We don't know the answer to that question yet. But what I can tell you is by cross-sectional area analyses, we did uh, three-dimensional micro CT scanning of our limb bones. Sloth bones are quite porous. And that could be indicative of the lack of bone material, the, what we call hydroxyapatite, the, the mineral composition of bone, perhaps sloth bones have less mineral composition than an average primate or a rodent or a horse. But where they do have collagen and where they do have osteons of bone, maybe the array of those are different. Maybe they're not strictly concentric circles, which is more typical of compressive strength. Maybe they're arranged differently to enhance tensile strength. So these are questions that we would like to answer in the future. And if I could make one additional reference to that, when we go back to the question of the tendons, again, they look thick, but they're not strong and stiff. What makes them weaker and what makes them less elastic? Is it because they don't have as much collagen? It, or is there some other component of the tendon tissue that's minimized or lacking in sloth tendons that we would find in other vertebrate mammalian tendons? Again, I would like to answer this question, but as, as we hypothesized, it could be, once again, through an evolutionary process that the amount of collagen that they retain in their tendons or the amount of collagen versus mineral composition that they retain in their bones, it could very well be lower than that of any typically upright mammal. But does that mean that it's not useful or does that mean that it's bad? No, it actually means that it's practical and it's functional because they can get away with having less metabolically active tissue Collagen is the main component of tendons and bone. It's the main protein in your body, the most abundant. So if you can have a bone that has less collagen, 
that means it requires less metabolic energy to maintain the tissue, and yet you're not sacrificing any strength that you need to climb a tree or to move below a tree branch, to me that makes sense. That again gets back to evolution and it being about conservation of energy. So maintaining the minimal amount of tissue that the animal needs to perform its functional behaviors and support its lifestyle. We've now seen that with the musculature. Remember, they have 24% of their body as skeletal muscle, 20% less than you and me. Yet, it doesn't seem to have any deficit. They're actually stronger than we are. Their tendons could have less collagen, which means it's cheaper for their low metabolism to maintain, and yet there's no risk of a tendon rupturing. The safety factors are still quite large compared to their body weight force. And the same could be true for bone. The bones need to be stronger in tension than in compression, and maybe that design is really one that requires less bone tissue, less collagen, less mineral content, yet it's more than adequate to support their body weight and their movements where they have appreciable bending strength and tensile strength, and they're not risking failure of breaking a bone or bone failure. It's a really excellent question. I would love to know the answer, as you said. This is the answer I think um, could be also inspiring for the robotics field as designing the softness and hardness. Actually, I'm working on that uh, now. Uh, okay. But I really like when you said um, this interplay between the collagen and minerals so that you don't have this kind of fail faster or how do you see this interplay largely depend on what since you say it could be it doesn't mean weak for example or strengthening or so how do you see this interplay this dynamic interplay so structure of collagen and minerals so that we end up with something adaptable but do you think some some context could be weak or <laughs> i don't know i i think i could use a very similar rationale that i used with you before all vertebrate bone is composed of the same type of tissue. The same nuts and bolts are used to build bone. Collagen, the main protein, and then you have mineral composition, hydroxyapatite, which uh, it fills in the matrix, the scaffolding of collagen. It's the way in which the collagen layers are laid down as bones develop, which is reflective of how the bone is being mechanically loaded. We have multiple concentric circles, osteons of bone, which these columns of collagen give our bones remarkable compressive strength. Your bones are much more likely to fail in tension than they are in compression. And bending is a combination of both tension and compression. One side of the bone is loaded in tension, the other side is loaded in compression. All vertebrate bones bend under load. It, it may be by a percent, one percent strain, maybe not even a percent, but they're sustaining bending loads and having to resist bending loads. So my argument is, if all bone is being built by the same types of tissue, depending on how the animal supports its body weight and how it moves, some animals could get away with having less collagen or arranging the collagen differently or less mineral content. The mineral content is not the expensive part of the bone to maintain. Essentially, your bones are repositories for minerals, calcium and phosphate. And we can pull them from our bones when we need them. When we have low calcium in our blood, we resorb it from our bones. When we have low phosphate, we can resorb it from our bones. 
Conversely, we can also deposit those minerals in our bones when we have too much in our blood. Sloths, I'm sure, do the same thing. They're mammals after all, they're vertebrates, but their bones may have, over evolutionary time, maintained a lower amount of biologically active, metabolically active collagen. They may have less mineral composition, hence the porosity of the bone, which could either speak to fewer minerals or less mineral composition or less collagen. Yet there doesn't appear to be any deficit to maintaining less bone tissue. And in fact, maybe being a system loaded in tension doesn't require as much collagen. Maybe your arrays of collagen are more parallel versus concentric. We won't know this until we do the microanatomical studies on the bones themselves. The same thing could be true for collagen. There are multiple types of collagen that you could find in a tendon, type one, type two, for example. Maybe there is a trade-off between one type of collagen versus another where, the, where one is less metabolically active and it costs less physiological energy to maintain versus another, yet there's no deficit in terms of the ability of the animal to use those tendons to support itself and to cause flexion of the digits. So again, this is I'm looking at it more from a cost-benefits analysis, and we tend to do this as morphologists and biomechanists. What's, what's the cheapest solution for the animal to be able to support its body weight and for it to be able to move? And that has multiple levels of organization. It's not only the bone and its composition, it's the tendons in their composition and their morphology, it's the muscles in their composition, their fiber type composition, their metabolism, and all of this correlates with the overall basal metabolic rate of the animal, the body temperature of the animal, what it feeds on, how much energy it gains from its forage, and how it moves. So it's this whole idea of ecophysiology, ecomorphology, and how did this evolve? The energy conservation part is both part of the evolutionary side of the argument and the ecological side of the argument. But all of these things are directly related to one another. Like you said, there's an interplay. It's, this is all integrated. And that's the way that I have to think of the system. It, it's easy for us to think about one component of the system and try to study that in a vacuum and explain our findings. But that's not good enough. We have to relate it to the entire limb system. And then once we understand how the limbs are put together and how they're working, relate it to the whole animal. And then once we understand how the whole animal is moving as a system or, or supporting itself as a system, then we have to relate it to its behavior and then its ecology. And then we can interrelate all of those factors with how did this come to be? And that's the ultimate goal, again, of the functional morphologist. This is what we're trying to do. So in any paper that you might read from me, if your listeners would like to read any papers that we've published, you're going to see this type of discussion in the discussion section of these manuscripts. We're, we're going to go beyond the bone tissue, beyond the tendon tissue, beyond the muscle tissue, and relate it to how the whole limb is functioning and how this might be saving the animal energy or how this might be the reason why this animal moves the way that it does and try to give some type of evolutionary and phylogenetic context to those arguments that we're making.